Resonance is an impact property fund manager founded in 2002. This is the seventh in a series of podcasts with people that have been instrumental in Resonance's growth. I'm Daniel Brewer, founder and chief exec of Resonance, impact property fund manager and one of the pioneers of impact investing in the UK. In this podcast series, I'm reflecting with 12 people who have been influential in Resonance's first 20 years and imagining what the next 20 years might look like. Okay, so with me today is Rebecca Sycamore. She's the chief exec of Toynbee Hall, relatively newly chief exec. So I'd love to hear the story of coming there. But uh, Rebecca and I have known each other for a number of years, uh, particularly in the role at uh, St Mungo's and before that Broadway I think we met before that as well. So I think we were briefly both trustees of a, a homelessness charity called Aspire. Um, That's right. And I remember being you know, very struck by your presence, even in the <laughs> couple of things that we had. I mean, I was being stroppy, Daniel. <laughs> no, I think it was great. <laughs> I, I remember only positively, but welcome. And thank you for your time today. I really appreciate you right. joining us. It's good to talk to you. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Thank you. So this, as you know, is part of our 20th anniversary, which is spreading it out. This is nearly over a year now before we, when we started. But I've really enjoyed these conversations with people who've been significant in Resonance's journey for not necessarily the whole of 20 years, but significant periods. And our relationship with some Mungos has certainly been one of the things that has has built the resonance model to something that is is sort of recognized and so a very soft spot for many of the folk in St Mungo's and yourself included for the partnership that we've created over the years. Perhaps we could go back to what you remember of first interacting with resonance or what you remember about me. I don't know from from the Aspire maybe I didn't make quite as big an impression on you. No, no, I did. I remembered. And then I think you were going off because you were moving to Launceston. So it was a very kind of short interaction. But yeah, I remembered. I think it was quite a, quite a good board as well. Like If you think about where people are now, there was right. a lot of people who have gone on and to do interesting things. You know, I know Andrew set up Reuse as well. So we've worked in, in a few diverse areas, which I think is fascinating in terms of people's trajectories. So yeah, I do remember. And I remember thinking, oh, social investment, what's that all about? And uh, But I think the whole point was that we were on that board because we were interested in different ways of doing things, different ways of funding organisations, because that was obviously about more earned income, social entrepreneurship. And I think that, in a sense, that makes sense as to how we came round to meet again, because one of the things that at the time, Broadway, who um, who was a homelessness charity that then merged with St Mungo's, but one of the things that it was exploring was this idea about other ways of earning income, social entrepreneurship so they had a HR company called Real People and I think a training offshoot as well called Real Skills and then Real Lettings was part of that exploration but obviously the one that kind of took us to a really really different place and and a, a massive place in comparison so I think it kind of makes sense actually that that's what this was all you know that's why people came together because we were at that time exploring different ways of funding our activities but also looking for things that had a link to our social purpose, our purpose as charities as well. Yeah. So come on to, to what we did, but just you personally, I mean, was nervous about 
being classified as a homelessness professional. Uh, somebody who's worked in the homelessness sector for many years. Occasionally, people go, you can't earn a living off that. It's just immoral. You think, well, yeah, okay, I can't do it for free. I need to do it. But what, what got you into, into this space to work with people who were particularly socially excluded and needing some support? Yeah, so... It's a good question. So I, I'm kind of a proper child of the 70s and 80s and growing up was, I guess, in a vaguely political household in, in the sense of parents who were kind of a lot of self-education and were interested in politics and disagreed. I think my, I have no knowledge of this, but I'm famously told that my grandfather was a communist. And so there's, there's a lot of political discussion in my family. And then through the sort of 70s and 80s, seeing really difficult times for communities around me living in the West Midlands, adjacent to people who were involved in the miners' strike and seeing the impact of that in communities in Tamworth and things like that. I'm right. from Coventry, so massively declined industry in terms of car industry moving out and, and you know all of that. So really part of that is what my background was. And I did a politics degree, but then trained to be a social worker and training to be a social worker involved being in Scotland and doing a placement on a, a housing scheme in Edinburgh, working with people who were homeless, had addictions, early people, you know, people who were affected by HIV and AIDS at the time, which was quite a long time right. ago. And also just, you know, people who were socially excluded. And I worked in a in a day centre and we did outreach to individuals. And I think that was my I'd, I'd done some voluntary work in domestic violence um, settings previously, but I think that that was my first really, those two factors together kind of really got me interested in working in homelessness and particularly at the time working with homeless people who were experiencing poor mental health. And so that was how I started here and I trained to be a social worker with the aim of working as a social worker with that group of individuals with the idea that helping them navigate the system, helping bring together a solution to homelessness, which would also improve mental health options. Right. And so I worked as a social worker and I, I worked at St Mungo's the first time as a support worker for that group of people. That was kind of my route in, really. I remember you telling me, I don't know quite when it was, but that you had a particular interest in in the food that people who are socially excluded facing homelessness eat and what we as society expect them to make really complex, difficult decisions in very short periods of time on relatively poor diets. And actually, if we want to improve some of this, and a lot of food and mental health connected, aren't they? But yeah, uh, I remember that always really kind of striking me. It's not just about calories. This is about, uh, you know, wellness. And we have to treat this as a health issue, not just as a housing issue. Yeah. And I think also then about sleep and people thinking about people being on the streets, particularly and and the noise and the traffic and, and just not feeling safe and how that affects you and all of those things. And then we're expecting people to make decisions about navigating quite complex systems or weighing up one option over another option when all of this and I and I, you know I think that's some of the some of the advantages of being able to bring people in quickly so you see things like you know the development of no second night out schemes which is about bringing people off the streets into a space where they can have their where they can assess but it'll be assessed and we can kind of find the route with them that works but also you know in that unsafe environment on the streets anymore you're somewhere else so actually does that make it easier I mean I think that in itself once especially once people are in some form of secure accommodation that then does mean that they you know, might find themselves having to face all of the things that they've been 
busily not facing while they've been on the streets and struggling to survive, which causes a whole other set of issues. But it is definitely wanting people to be able to to be safe and warm and dry and have somewhere they can sleep and not worry about their stuff being stolen or et cetera, et cetera. It's definitely a way of making sure that people are in a better position to make the choices that are right for them. So uh, one of the things I, I kind of noticed a few years into working with homelessness charities is that you quite quickly get used to the lingo. And and so you, you talk about homelessness and you realise there is a difference or at least spectrum where rough sleeping is a little element of this, but actually the homelessness challenge is, is huge and much bigger than that. So most members of the general public who haven't got an awful lot of experience in this space go, they hear the word homeless, they think rough sleeping. But it's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? And actually, I think it was something that Broadway communicated. So it probably came out of your marketing days. But this idea of how many paychecks you are, most of us are away from being homeless is quite stark, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a statistic that we've used or homelessness organisations have used consistently. I know that you're right. I think Broadway did talk about it a lot. And, you know, and the fragility. and, And I see that now just to circle all the way back around to what I'm doing now one of the things that Toynbee Hall does is we are a lead partner in a coalition of organizations who provide a service called debt-free advice so providing advice to people experiencing debt and what we see is the amount of people who at the end of having their debt sorted out do not have enough money to pay for everything in their world and one of the main things that they don't have enough money to pay for is housing yeah, yeah. In all of that complex system, I, I suppose I've come across frequent perceptions that it's their fault. You know, if only they were better at looking after their money, if only they were better, you know, you can take some personal responsibility for this. How do you navigate that personally? Where sometimes, you know, people are making some poor decisions with context, you know, foods, sleep, lack of all the above. But I think the thing that, that struck me particularly in the last couple of years was, and it might have been just before COVID as well, that the primary cause of hopeless was just essentially a landlord saying, actually, I can charge a higher rent. You either pay the rent or you leave, or I want to sell the property, etc. And, yeah. and there. But the perception of of us and them in this, the, the kind of uh, slightly patronising view of let's yeah. go help these poor people. How, how do you approach? I mean, it's definitely still there. Okay. But, I mean, one of the things I suppose to think about, or one of the things I want to say is that some mungos, that was one of the things that we were kind of basically surveying and testing. One of the questions we were asking is, do people still, do people, you know, what is the balance between people thinking it's structural factors and individual factors right. that have caused somebody to end up homeless or have resulted in people experiencing homelessness? And I think there is a shift, I would say, over the last few years, you know, maybe particularly as cost of living crisis has has really become something that people are very, very aware of. But even probably before that, so pre-pandemic, I think that there was definitely a sense that people understand that not all of this is about individual choices, that there are things that happen and there not being enough housing, I think is something that has played into the thought process of, oh, well, actually, that might be why somebody's homeless. And also, I think, maybe a level of more sophisticated understanding that those structural factors and individual stuff combine together at times. And normally, 
if I'm having that conversation with people, the way that I approach it is talk about some data. And I think it's data that colleagues at Crisis did a long time ago now, actually, but it's stuck in my mind, which is about the level of contacts and the level of people that are close to you. So that the sense that if you have had certain things happen in your life or various other problems, the amount of people that you could go to for help is much reduced as opposed to other people who have a lot of people who could go for help, right? So if something terrible happens, if you lose your job and then for a couple of months you can't pay your rent, some of us have a lot of options as to who could look after you or who could help out. And the options mean that they could probably afford to help you for longer, whilst other people don't have that or they do have that, but it's a really short two-night job. And the chances of you being able to sort yourself out in that period of time, especially if you are, you know, you don't have lots of savings, is really, really reduced. And so the way into it is thinking about, well, if if your brother, sister, son, daughter, if something went wrong, who would they turn to? Okay. But imagine you didn't have that. Imagine you weren't on good terms with them. Imagine those people had moved to Australia. Okay. So who are you going to then? Okay. Your friends, but they've got a new baby and maybe you can stay for two nights, but you can't sleep any longer. Okay, where are you going to then? Oh, but it's going to take two weeks to sort out your new job. Where are yeah. you going to live? Yeah. And I think once you start to say, actually, it's about the reduction of who people have got to help, and then the reduction of the public realm and the safety net being pushed back to its bare minimums, then you start to see how people can fall through the gaps. And there is a, a way into talking about people, which is not about personal blame and people, you know, they just take responsibility. It's like, well, but we all need a helping hand sometimes, right? But if you don't have anybody, then what happens? Right. It led me on a kind of journey of trying to choose the the right labels and i still don't think we've got this right but i came across the the term advantaged thinking rather than disadvantaged yeah. thinking yeah. ability not disability if you don't go oh you're a refugee aren't you, you go well actually <laughs> you're also a doctor and a some yeah. entrepreneur and something else what is it that you as a human being can bring bring to the table it might not be a house and you know lots of financial resources but you've got something to offer and and in in the dignity of acknowledging another human being. So one of our rules in residence is never never to use the word beneficiary because it immediately allows you to go to the, oh, well, we're helping those beneficiaries. We're giving something, yeah. And it's not that it's a nasty word. It's just that it's a sloppy word because we actually all benefit. You know, our investors benefit from a return. Local authorities benefit. Um, we benefit from earning a living. You know, there are benefits through a system. We, of course, want people uh, who are most vulnerable to perhaps benefit the most but uh, i found myself using the term vip and watching the reaction of people in in a room you know people investors and others and going hang on who's he talking about vips are they the like the real really big investors that Oh, very large sums of money and then they realized that i was talking about the tenants and i was genuinely i wasn't trying to be gimmicky about it but you and i hear the stories of the tenants and we are you know residents were one step and move so we don't get to meet many of them but the ones that we have just so inspired by the courage and the resilience and the optimism and 
you know, gratefulness and just think, wow, you know, if I was given half of those barriers, I would have been chuffed to bits to be able to cope with it. So you start to realize that social investing is is actually at the individual level, you know, it's not really the allocation of money. It's not really the uh, the acquisition of certain types of property. It's not, not, not even the, you know, the support provided around it because people can you know, push against all of that. It, it is ultimately what individuals make of it but getting the context right and providing the right support and you know, making sure that the houses are good quality all of that is 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 important and important to not get wrong you know yeah. not forget who the who the real heroes are in that and that's been a journey for me again working alongside you and others at mongo's have been practicing day to day to day to day is you know let's let's show the respect to people who deserve it and let's use the right labels let's see potential not just the disadvantage as well which has been really inspiring for me as well i think but i think that's a journey that we're all we've all been on you know to see people as their their strengths and to think a lot more about choice and control being with the person that we're working with or that we're supporting or that we are facilitating their ability to make choices rather than it being our direction our thought process about what the right thing for that person to be but really about providing the platform the safe space for them to kind of rest reset and then make some choices and some decisions but that our job is to be the you know not even a guide to offer the path and to make sure they they're aware of what the choices are but it's ultimately for that person to work through and to make some decisions based on where they are and what makes sense and I guess to kind of say well you know for also for them to know look take the lead make the decision probably it'll all work out and amazing and hopefully in the nicest possible way we never you never need to come back and talk to us again but actually if you do and we'll be here there is a fallback but we all want you not to need that but we recognize that everybody is needs a bit of help at times a lot of the time we think about independence as though that's the only thing but we're all independent you know I talked earlier about who do we have who we turn to for help we're not expecting people to work through a period of homelessness and never need any help from anybody again we're not that's not realistic we're human beings right so not not making turning to a charity like St Mungo's or Broadway or anybody else not making that feel stigmatizing but but making it feel like it's something that is empowering and that you as the individual go from that feeling still in control of your choices I think is, is, is where we are probably now as charities but you know that's that's a journey that we've been through yeah amazing so I remember getting a letter you know, a good old-fashioned letter with an ink signature on it from from Howard uh, Sinclair. I think actually uh, the chair of Broadway, Lord Lewis at the time. And and uh, I really didn't know what to do with this. We weren't working in housing. I didn't know what done the issue, but uh, it was a real lesson to me in in the value of old school letters. <laughs> uh, I couldn't throw it away because it really genuinely looked like that there was a, a conversation to be had. You know, this is residents without any funds under management. We have no investment. Um, and we hear a story of, I think it is 60-odd uh, landlords, 170 properties, yeah. something that's working. And as a move on accommodation, so these are for people who've been, you know, perhaps through a bit of a hostel or temporary accommodation of some degree, and actually they're ready to move on without much or any support, um, their peer support perhaps. Uh, and, and, and a sustained tenancy but we just tried to unlock the private market where can they go and we just can't unlock houses fast enough and 
and so he sort of begins this exploration and, and what I remember uh, was well, we looked at insurance, I buy to let landlords and looked at a um, variety of different other schemes that might just unlock existing properties that were there. But what I think we collectively realised was, well, wouldn't it be nice if there was a, you know, a super landlord that we could actually go and buy properties that did work in the right spaces rather than often getting the leftover properties that landlords say, well, I suppose if I can't let it, and no, I can't really do this. I don't want to spend much money. But there might be a homeless person that could, you know, benefit from this. And you're like, well, thank you so much, kind landlord. <laughs> uh, I don't suppose you could improve your property. And well, no, I'm not spending money on it. You know, and trying to work with what you've got uh, whilst also trying to drive up standards. But the opportunity to go, right, what about this property? Should we go and buy it? I remember, I think it was Susan, just about the quality of the properties that we were able to produce, the ones that she could access uh, outside that made me really proud. I, you know, it was obviously an intention, but didn't know if it was going to be real or not. What do you remember about those early days of trying to find a way to work together? You know, it took a year or two. So I joined Broadway at the end of 2010, all right? So I think some of the conversations were kind of in train by then. Right. But it, it kind of was really about, you know, at the time, so like the setting up of this kind of private rented sector scheme to unlock the private rented sector was risky. Like people thought that it might not work. You wouldn't be able to do it because of the kind of cost implications. And so Broadway had taken a bit of a risk and then they made it work and it had been working, but it, you know, it was about how do we scale it? Because there's still lots and lots of people sitting in hostels and temporary accommodation who do have low support needs, who you're right with some peer support, with some mentoring, but actually because of their past experience, maybe more than capable of maintaining a tenancy, but there just isn't access to that accommodation. Them. And they're basically, you know, sitting in that accommodation where they don't need to be. But also that means that other people can't be in that accommodation who might need it. So this this idea of the system kind of slightly grinding to a halt because there's no, you know, we talk about move on, but there's no viable accommodation options. And we also know that supported housing and social housing is in very short supply as well. Right. So, you know, so it's about how to scale, but also, you know, from an organizational point of view, you know, how to do it in a way that makes sense for a reasonably small organization at the time um, and how to do it in a way that means that we can provide something different and something that is not that poor quality accommodation and an accommodation that, you know, enables people to be settled for a while, to have a base, to be able to rebuild, to be able to make some decisions about their future. And, and all of that. So I think it was a lot of layers to it. And I think the exploration of, you know, how do we do that in a way that doesn't mean that we're taking so much of a risk that the rest of the charitable activity of the organization is at risk, yes. but also how do we do this? Because if we can find a, an answer to this, it feels like it's something that would make a massive difference just to us, not only to us and the people that Broadway were kind of working with but a wider sector so it felt like something that was important but was complicated and right. that was why I think it took the time to work through yeah and I think the thing I found looking back was really really proud of really pleased that we did it in this way was that it always felt to me like we were doing it in partnership so this wasn't us as an investor going oh let's you know we got this investment thing and 
you, you're just the housing provider, but it was, how can we design this together? How can we share the cost of developing it? Because we didn't have the resources. We clearly needed each other. And that partnership sustained even when it got to the point where there were other housing partners involved and some of it had its own momentum. It was always whenever we hit a barrier, let's let's get around the table and talk about it. And I don't know if that was how it felt to you. I, it definitely felt like that. I think the personal relationships and the individuals who had built trust in each other. And I think it didn't feel like we were like hiding the challenges from each other. And it was, this is a problem. How do we find a way through it? As opposed to, oh, I can't tell you that because it's not that kind of partnership. So we all kind of wear masks and everything's fine, but really, you know, all of this stuff is happening. So it wasn't like that. It did feel like a mutual exploration. And also I think we were lucky, lucky is the wrong word. You know, we made links with funders at a really early stage who were willing to at least fund the development or the exploration or the early stages when we were trying work out how to do it and so I think that helps to kind of give us some space to work on it together but that was they were taking a risk right we hadn't worked out how to do it we hadn't worked out if it could be developed so those people who were the initial supporters and I think instinctively lots of people felt that if we could find a way to work it would make a massive difference right but that if was big yeah you know occasionally I identify as an entrepreneur and uh, entrepreneurs tend to see see the future and a lot of other people tend to just see the past and, and a lot of finance flows based on data and data only exists in the past <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's really hard to mobilize money and and it's really frustrating for entrepreneurs you go but oh, what can't you see <laughs> and the answer is actually no yeah. uh, um but one of the, I mean, this is where leadership is amazing. And we've already touched on the power of social networks in crisis, but also in, in opportunity. And David Montague was a great friend of Broadway's and, and Howard's and chief executive at the Q made an offer that was a standalone offer. Uh, let's buy you 10 million pounds worth of houses. That would be great. And I kind of remember trying to, trying to be pleased for how it's like, this is great, Howard. I love the fact that you've got a new landlord that this just it actually doesn't help me <laughs> do the do the bigger thing here do you think there might be a chance that we could persuade him not to just buy you 10 million pounds of hazard but actually invest the money so that we could turn it into something bigger and i remember that conversation with david and he's a great listener you know heard us out <laughs> trying trying to be grateful whilst also asking for more is really difficult and he went yeah okay i get it you know if this could turn into something that was 20 million then that's worth it isn't it and you know we're not this is already allocated out of our foundation so we want to obviously be a co-investor and actually just being a grant funder isn't really what we're trying to do here we're trying to get it something that we can demonstrate works and the amount of capital that could be available if we could show an economic return. And so that first year of we need to get to 20 million to do it. And and then when we when I sort of saw David a few years later and we were celebrating the success of the, the fund and and it was then 200 million, now 300 million, uh, it was like, yeah, I'm pretty pleased with that. And actually the last couple of months we started to hand their first lots of money back, which is it's always this mixed feeling when you're trying to raise, you know, 200 million to hand 20 million back to uh, the first round of investors. It's like, here you go. But actually, I'm really proud of it as well. And I also try to persuade social entrepreneurs to want to pay the money yeah. back. Okay? If you want to pay the money back to investors, then you build confidence in their belief in you such that 
when you go back again and say, right, I've got a bigger thing, they add a zero to the end. Now, I have to know that LNQ are not actually in the position of looking at this thing. But the point is that other investors are now coming to the table that 10 years ago, it would have gone, well, you need to prove the model. And it takes it takes one or two people to just break that. But it does come from leadership and, and from relationships, really. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, that, but also I think that tantalizing sense that there was a solution here and it was just about how to work it. We'd already started talking about the fact that actually the private rental sector could be an option that there were issues of quality and issues of the the need for the first step into the private rental sector for somebody who's experienced homelessness for that to feel safe for it to be with an organization that they'd heard of and that they knew about and who had social goals and also for further private landlords for them looking at somebody's record to see oh here is a period of somebody who's lived in private sector who's paid rent for two years yeah they're a very viable tenant right so that move on record of yeah they've paid rent they've been in a private rental sector for that yeah, of course, when they come to, they want to move into a bigger place because they've got married, had kids. That will make sense, right? So I think that thought that actually there should be a way to do this. How do we unlock it? What is the solution? And then at the same time, that really like smart calculation of it would be much better if we were working with one landlord that we had the ability to negotiate with or to talk to and to set the criteria and the location and the quality so that we were really clear about what we were offering people and we you know we were really confident and at the same time to really recognize the centrality of the relationship in order to make that work yeah yeah well it's been a been a journey and and when the local authorities started going oh gosh this is exciting and then realized that they could also invest things started to supercharge and and then in the last three years, we've got to the point where we just we now got twenty plus housing partners uh, across the country, uh, and beginning to get these pension funds who are going. Actually, this is actually a risk adjusted yeah. return. There is enough data now to go. Oh yeah, if you buy at the thirtieth percentile and you you rent at the thirtieth percentile, then actually it's still a market, and the risks are diversified and these housing partners actually really care about the people as well as the property you know these are all risk mitigants from an investor perspective and i always always say to my challenge to the property industry who often are a bit aloof from their tenants the ones that will do well are the ones that treat their tenants as customers your tenants however you like them they are paying you a lot of money they are your customer and in every other industry they're treated as gold dust what more can I do for you, sir, uh, ma'am? Whereas tenants are somehow treated as this, um, it's like irritants that occupy our works of art. And therein, I think, lies a cultural and legal and structural yeah. challenge that's there for the taking, really. I think if you tenants who are reliable and like their landlords, you know, <laughs> that's a that's a good good thing for, for investors yeah. to participate in. And I, and I think, you know, we're maybe starting to get there in terms of the renters reform bill and the kind yeah, of legislation, right. hopefully an end to that section 21, no fault evictions and the idea that people could have pets more easily. And, you know, all of those things that, that then if you've got a good tenant, no matter where, what their life is, you've got a good tenant, you've got a good tenant, you know, that's what you want to hold right. on to. So how do we change the balance? It's interesting. I mean, that, that act coming in, it's almost feel as a as a landlord i should have a problem with it because it's very tenant focused but i'm so excited about mm-hmm. it 
because of the balance that it makes. And I do think there is some reasonable concessions around dealing with, you know, antisocial behaviour yeah. and rents not being paid. Those the, the two things that really, you know, when they happen, it's caught you want to have the law on your side. But yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I should be saying, well, there's a problem with this, but I'm just like, I'm so thrilled that that bit of legislation has, has come in and yeah, sets a tone for what I think is probably, I hope, the practice that we would have aspired to anyway and so to go actually this is how we behave this is how we perform and now the regulation is requiring that good behavior that's a good result isn't it showing it is yes i mean i think the bill's launched it's kind of obviously got to go through parliament some amendments and some things that we we still think "Mm, could look at could not look at you know there's but definitely and also you know that sense of taking away the thought that people's worry that if they complain about their landlords that they will be penalised by being evicted, you know, that sense of actually people should be able to raise concerns if things are not being done properly, if the quality and the condition of the property is not being improved, if there are significant problems, that is all hard enough. But actually with the thought that you can't actually complain because you might end up being no-fault evicted, I mean, that's like, yeah, that, that, that shouldn't exist. So you are now at Toynbee Hall, a very, very cool organisation with its own fabulous history, uh, but still operating, as I understand it, in around some of the housing issues. What are the things that you see in the future? There are some, some big challenges and there's some real structural issues that continue, but what do you think the world might look like in 20 years' time? So Toynbee Hall is 140 years old next year. And as you say, has like this rich history of social action and the foundations of stuff that have kind of shaped our response to social problems we see massive amounts of debt advice that we're providing real need for for debt advice and also that people don't have access to legal aid which means they cannot enforce their rights and so one of our big concerns is access to justice access to ability to enforce your rights and what we're we and many other providers of pro bono legal advice are working very hard to kind of be in that space. But I think we feel that that the justice system is failing people and we'd like to see changes to that. We'd like to see a review of what is and what isn't in scope and of for legal aid and all of that stuff, not to mention a whole reform of the courts so that things don't take so long, but particularly around appealing about benefits, appealing about housing, employee rights, if you're you know, treated badly by your employer, all of that kind of stuff. You know, and, and obviously the people who are most affected by that are the people who are structurally disadvantaged anyway. So there's a whole set of disadvantages that come from that. But I think what I see as being hopeful or what I think is hopeful is social action around that, activism, organising. We see a massive increase in the voice of people with lived experience of issues, campaigning, involved in research, involved in influencing and communicating their experience directly to government. That's kind of what... Toynbee Hall was sort of doing back 139 years ago but it's it's what we are aiming to do now but in a very different way where the role of the organization is not to be that voice anymore what we're I suppose seeking to do is to facilitate people with lived experience to be that voice to be the activists to be the organizers because we are in a place where we need to change who has control of decision making who has access to power who has roots to to all of that influence and engagement and so the role here is about well how do we not only 
help people enforce their rights, but then how do we help and support their journey to activism and organising about making that change? And so I suppose that's the bit that we're figuring out at the moment. I won't say we've got it figured out, but we're figuring that out. I, I mean, I'm really excited. I've been reading more and more about citizenship and participation and and actually you can trust people to, you know, if you listen to people and they engage, you can end up with really good, good solutions. And it does seem to be a bit more movement, the confidence that, that people are not just trying to create anarchy or throw, throw things out, but create change. And you see it even in the pension industry. So the movement that Richard Curtis has kind of got behind, Make My Money Matter, and how much influence the ordinary citizen is having on their own money. Do you know where your pensions are invested? Have you asked where their shares are? Are you demanding that, that at least they use their vote for or against issues that matter to your future? And don't you know that it's actually their moral and fiduciary responsibility, not just to maximise your return, but to maximise your opportunity as a pensioner? You know, it's, it's we want to build the future. I don't want to live in a future with a whole load of money that is full of rough sleepers and uh, you know climate catastrophe i want to live in that and and now you can't touch a pension conference and not yeah have a conversation about impact it's like it's just all that they want to talk about now how to do it well you know financially and robustly but it's the engagement and i was at a, a conference which was actually trying again to do that full loop of going so how are you telling your pension members the story of what you're investing in and some of the best ones are actually taking them saying look you're a member of our pension scheme why don't you come on our tour of a wind farm or you know housing estates just see some of the things that we have invested in and the circle is they suddenly people want to save more for their pension and you're like oh this is really working the storytelling and the engagement just in that little bit of it but Mm -hmm. but uh, in, in policy and justice you know there are lots of things to fix but we are the solution, right? We've got to be. Well, yeah, and it's the people of, you know, the people who live here and the people who are part of the community here that are the solution for, for Tower Hamlets and how they speak to, to the local authority, to decision makers, to business, but also what that then translates to the wider influencing and how you then take the local experience and what's happening here and how you then think through, well, what does that mean nationally? You know, what does that mean beyond that? Renters' reform bills are really good example of that you know there's been a really broad coalition of people including people in rented accommodation you know generation rent other people other tenant-led organizations who have continued to campaign and advocate and push for this over what feels like a very long period of time and other organizations have been part of that homelessness charities some mongos shelter crisis lots and lots of others have been talking about this for a long time but it is a really broad coalition of people who got to that point where we're saying this is an opportunity to redress between a tenant and a landlord we recognize the landlords need some protections but so do we yeah brilliant well let's leave it there thank you for your time rebecca yeah. it's amazing to talk to you uh, inspiration as ever and really grateful for your friendship and and partnership over the years and like we said before the call i hope that that continues as you change organization and uh, i'll be in touch (laughs) yeah that'd be great thank you so much thanks daniel bye